Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Love of Life podcast. And tonight we have another special guest. If the name is familiar to you, yes, it is the name of the last guest that we had. It was about three weeks ago and he's aged some. No, <laughs> just joking. Uh, this is Jeff Myers Sr. He's the pastor at Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. And we are pleased to have him on the show tonight. How are you doing, Pastor Jeff? Great. Good to be here. I am the original Jeff Myers. He is the copy. <laughs> nobody knows. Yes. The copy. Yeah. He's a decent copy. We had a great time talking to him. Yeah. I listened to that Did you? episode. Uh, I'm always surprised. Well, I guess I shouldn't be, but, but <laughs> I'm surprised at how much he knows about finances. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. He's pretty good. Yeah. I'm sure you have to be proud of him for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about your book, uh, The Lord's Service. I'm going to hold it up so people can see it if they're watching. Um, so The Lord's Service, I read this probably a year ago now. This greatly enhanced my understanding and everything that I told Courtney <laughs> uh, regarding ecclesiology and church and things of that nature. I thought maybe we could define terms from the beginning. Um, just start with that. So what is covenant renewal worship? how would you define that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, although it is a somewhat new term uh, to describe Christian worship, it really just puts some meat and bones on what is traditional liturgy that goes way back. Basically, the order, the sequence uh, that God uses to, to draw us near to himself in the assembly. Um, and traditional liturgies generally follow that order. Uh, the reason we're calling it covenant, uh, covenant renewal, is because in the Bible, God's relationship with us is in terms of a covenant. So it's, it's not just a personal relationship, which can be amorphous and freeform. Uh, it has a form. It has a structure, uh, God's covenant with us. And a lot of the work that's been done in the last 100 years in uh, Christian, conservative Christian circles, but also you know, academic Christian circles about uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, have been uh, enlightening in terms of covenant. Uh, some ancient Near Eastern kinds of uh, discoveries have thrown light on and let us see things in the Bible we didn't see before. Uh, so things like that. So basically what you have is this is the form, this is the structure of God's personal relationship with us. Um, and he renews it uh, by taking us through this sequence, this pattern uh, in the assembly every Lord's day. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of give us an overview of what those different pieces are? Sure. sure. So uh, <clears throat> he calls us into his presence and there is a, there is a sense in which when the church is gathered together, uh, he's specially present with us, uh, present to bless us, present to gift us. And so he he calls us, we respond to the call, we gather, and then as scripture says all over the place, we enter his gates with thanksgiving. So we enter with praise and singing. Um, and then once we're in his presence, we realize that um, we have a lot of guilt. Uh, we have uh, issues and burdens uh, liabilities that we've uh, uh, we've racked up all week. It uh, doesn't mean we can't be forgiven daily. We certainly can, but uh, in God's special presence, we kind of lay all those out. We we confess our sins, and then we hear God tell us that our sins are forgiven in Christ. Jesus has died. Uh, we're united with Him. Uh, he loves us, and He frees us from the guilt, the liabilities, our sins, and that then. That then gives us the liberty to listen to his word for wisdom, for instruction, for guidance. And so we hear uh, long, well, sometimes long passages read from the Hebrew scriptures, the epistles, uh, uh, the gospel reading. Uh, the word of God is central and, and read. Um, and when we listen to that and gain wisdom, uh, and then we have it explained to us in a sermon. And then after that, we offer ourselves in response to that through um, through the offerings, through tithes and offerings. Uh, the table is set. 
we sit down then. The high point of every covenant renewal, whether it's in the sacrificial system or in Israel, in the feasts, is a meal. You sit down and have a meal with God. Uh, and that is, I mean, you look at Exodus 24 and when the elders and Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up on the mountain, they saw the God of Israel and they ate and drank. So when you're in God's special presence, you eat and drink. Every every Sabbath day and all the special Sabbaths in Israel, and there are about 80 of them, including the weekly Sabbaths. If you look at Leviticus 23, they're all called feasts. Okay? Not fast, but feasts. Uh, literally, in the Israelite festival system yearly, there's only one fast, and it's associated with the Day of Atonement. So you're constantly... Uh, having a meal with God in one way or the other uh, when you're in his presence. So you then, so we have communion, we have the Lord's supper. Um, and then after that, we're sent out, we're sent out back into the world, uh, encouraged, strengthened, empowered to extend his kingdom. That's, that's the basic system. And, and if you think about it, um, even in churches that don't have covenant renewal worship, or even who maybe sniff a little bit at, traditional liturgies everybody kind of goes through that when they gather together uh they may not it may not be explicitly there in their bulletin in their service in their order they may not say say it the same way but people generally go through that it's kind of built into the christian psyche from the scriptures um that this is the way you approach god this is the way god draws you near to himself mm-hmm yeah, that's really good. I've heard you talk about this. I actually have read this before in Jonathan Edwards as well. Um, talk a little bit about the roof coming off. Spiritually speaking, what is really going on? It's not just the corporate body of present believers. Um, there's even something else going beyond that. Where Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's good. Um, I think we should recognize it by faith that when we do gather together and there's a call to worship and we enter into God's presence, that um, heaven and earth are joined in some sense. We ascend into heaven by the spirit. The spirit unites heaven and earth. And so I think it was many years ago, 30, maybe more than that, uh, Dr. Rob Rayburn, um, who was the son of uh, Rob uh, the son of Dr. Rayburn Sr., who wrote a book in the 80s called Come Let Us Worship, trying to restore a more liturgical worship to evangelicalism. Well, his son, um, that's his son used to say that everybody needs to think about the roof just disappearing in the, your church or wherever you're meeting uh, and heaven and earth joined. And we are with not just each other, but with the Lord and all the um triumphant saints in heaven and the angels everything mm -hmm. so um so like when we lift up our hearts all we we remember that we are uh there with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven mm -hmm. giving thanks and praising him mm -hmm. um that's something that we don't see but we believe happens mm -hmm. in the worship service yeah and just to kind of expound on that is it fair to say then that these saints can perhaps maybe observe us departed saints relatives is it is, is that or is it how would that i guess how, how does that look or just from our side we don't know well that's a good question i you know we really don't know we don't have a whole lot of information about how much uh departed saints disembodied departed saints in heaven interact with us and we have the there's a passage in revelation chapter six where the souls of those who've been beheaded for the testimony of jesus are under the altar and they're crying out how long O lord until you avenge to you vindicate us and uh against our enemies those who put us to death so that's an indication that there is some interaction there or there's some observation about what's going on uh but i i think i would assume that departed saints do participate with the earthly saints in some way mm -hmm. um, again it's somewhat speculative but 
Well, we also have uh, Hebrews 12, which mm-hmm. talks about um, uh, the festal assembly in heaven. Uh, I don't remember the exact words. I don't have it with me. Um, but that's also another one of these proof texts for the possibility that saints are are actually observing and participating with us. Yeah, yeah. It does give it an expanded, glorious sense, too, even when we are in the Lord's service every Sunday. I often now think about that. I just go, wow, it's it's us here, yes, but heaven and earth are joined. And mm-hmm. yeah, it really has enhanced my perspective on that. Yeah, and we should also recognize that when we do gather, no matter how small our church, we're united with all the other saints who are worshiping too. Mm-hmm. Now they might not be worshiping at the same time, but there's a union there. There's a, a, a kind of legitimate ecumenical sense that we ought to have that uh, it's we're not just worshiping as Presbyterians or Baptists or whatever. We're worshiping together with all the saints who are gathered on the Lord's day mm-hmm. to, to receive his gifts and to praise him. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. There are in in the Lord's service, there's lots of things that we do weekly. There are songs that we sing every week. Um, right. There are things that we say every week. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about why we do those certain things? And then also, I think there's kind of this modern um, misnomer that if you <laughs> eat something over and over, that <laughs> becomes void of meaning or that it's maybe not spirit led because it's pre thought out. Um, can you kind of dispel that? Yeah, that that's a, that's a great question. And it's one that a lot of people have, you know, if it's repetitive, then it's not meaningful. You kind of have to do something new all the time. Um, there's a number of ways to answer that. One is, Hey, you know, we say the same things say in our marriage there are things that we say the same way same words to one another husband and wife and they're meaningful i mean you want to hear it you want to hear it that way there are even you know in terms of intimacy with husband and wife usually you're intimate in the same way all the time unless you really want to be crazy you know you might <laughs> hear stuff. But, but really i mean uh, yeah. doing doing that that's a really odd um analogy i'm sorry no it's uh, good you, you can cut that out if you want but um, we know what you mean <laughs> we're, we're we're creatures of ritual yeah and rituals uh ground us if you will so w- when i when i taught school when i first started teaching school i came into the school i was going to teach um fourth and fifth graders i think it was my first year and the headmaster sat down with me and said look you need to establish a structure, rituals in that classroom. Kids flourish when they know what the structure is. He said other things too, like don't try to be their friend until after like six months. You know, <laughs> they need to respect you before they, they they enjoy your presence, you know, that kind of thing. But but rituals really do ground us. Um, and look, even churches that say they don't have rituals, oh, they have rituals, all right. And even that you know, they don't not like printed prayers, but you know, when the person stands up to pray extemporaneously, <laughs> they usually say the same thing. And sometimes it's not very well thought out, yeah. you know? Um, and so that there's that. The other thing is that, um, how do I put this? When, when we do have rituals that we do repetitively, it's how we learn. It's it structures our heart and our minds. Um, so you know, repetition is the essence of learning. You've heard that before. Well, uh, the Lord schools us through these repetitions. Uh, the other thing is when when you are in a church, and this is difficult because a lot of us don't stay in church very long. Pastors move from church to church every two or three years. A lot of them do. But when you're, when you're in a church and you have consistent, repetitive rituals, um, and you start with that as children, as young children, um, it's, it's going to be hard to get away from that. So I, for example, there's two ways to look at this, both as for kids and then for older 
uh, adults. So when I was growing up, I grew up in a Lutheran church, and it was highly structured liturgy, a good liturgy. Um, I don't, I didn't appreciate it as a child. I really didn't. Um, but it got into my bones. And so in college, when I fell away, when I was in in danger of falling away and going my own way, and the Lord just yanked my chain and brought me back, I remember going into a church. I think it was a Methodist church on the University of Missouri campus. I hadn't been to church in years, but I uh, I went to church. I'm like, oh, I know the Nicene Creed. Oh, I know this hymn. Oh, you know, I've heard this prayer before. Uh, and all sorts of responses I just kind of knew. And it all just came rushing back to me. And, and even when um, I prayed the sinner's prayer as a college student in my dorm room, I, I knew how to pray. I knew what to say because I'd learned it uh, growing up. It, it was, you know, it was, it was not, it was soft wired into me. Software was there. Um, now, the other thing to say is um, <clears throat> when we get older and our mental capacities degrade, um, I've noticed in ministering to older folks that they might not remember a lot of things. But if they grew up in a church that has kind of repetitive liturgies and you start that with them, like in their room, uh, their hospital room or their nursing care facility, they'll 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 pick it up. Uh, a hymn that they've sung over and over again. They know the words. Yeah. Uh, prayers, uh, Lord's Prayer, uh, Nicene Creed. OK, now we we can get and I'm I understand this. I can get tired of saying the same thing over and over. I understand that. Um, but I also know the benefit of it. And uh, that's, that's one of the things. So having a church, it's changes all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's kind of fun maybe, but Christian life is not really all about being fun. It's about being patterned for life yeah. uh, and living uh, and living in God's presence. And so uh, it's it's a it's kind of a it's a very modern American fad to mm -hmm. want to just do things differently all the time. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we are a very individualistic society, culture, very atomistic, do your own thing. And a lot of churches have kind of exhibited that sort of attitude where it's me and Jesus and my personal Jesus time. Get the lights down low you know, all this kind of just me and Jesus among yeah. all of these people that are here, but it's really just about me and Jesus. Yes. So, so, so if we could, let's juxtapose or talk a bit about the corporate body of Christ versus just thinking of church in your own individualistic self. How does the Lord's service benefit or protect against that individualism? Uh, yeah. The way that it's structured. Yeah. That's a that's a great question. Very good question. Um, I mean, I, I could be flippant and say, you've got six days to be your individual self. <laughs> you come for an hour or an hour and a half at church, and you're you're a body. You're an assembly. Yeah. You're 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 one with one another. You can say things together. You're going to raise your hands together. You're going to kneel together. You're going to recite prayers together. Uh, and in doing one of one of the things in doing that is you're ministering to one another doing that. So when everybody participates in a vigorous kind of way, that encourages you. I mean, there's been plenty of people have told me, and it's not just true for our church, for other churches too. You, I came to church discouraged or really kind of you know blah blah blah. This week's been you know kind of rotten. Kids were awful in the car. I had an argument with the wife, didn't really want to come to worship service. But you come and all of a sudden you're kind of you're you're carried along with everybody else. Uh so it's a one anothering kind of ministry that goes on there. Um and um and people forget that. So if you're just coming in and offering or, or hoping to find some sort of individualistic experience, um you know, that's that's kind of selfish in many ways. You come there, if you come there wanting to serve others as well as be served by God, uh, that's a good balance. 
that's that's one way to answer that. Um, and I don't think that <clears throat> I don't believe that coming together for worship ought to be an opportunity for people to display their own individuality and their own individual kind of spirituality. Um, and we even discourage people, although it's it's not a sin or anything. I just discourage people from um, individual displays of of spirituality. So, you know, <laughs> if everybody is standing there singing, well, then and you're you're the only one raising your hand and kind of dancing around. Okay, why are you doing that? All right. Maybe you, maybe there's sometimes you do that and you're just not thinking because you're swept up in a moment. Oh, okay, that's fine. But if you're doing that all the time, why? Uh, just do what everybody else is doing. Just just um, just submit to the order and discipline of the church. And that's the other thing is, and uh, Courtney, I think you mentioned this earlier. Um, there's this idea that the Holy Spirit causes us to break free from structure and form uh and uh, order uh, but but i mean i mean if you just look at your bible read your bible what the spirit does is he brings people together and he creates order mm-hmm. the spirit creates out of a a dark disordered and empty world in genesis 1 and a lit up world an ordered world and it, and he fills it up uh, that's what the spirit does. And that happens all through the scripture. So the spirit brings all these people out of Egypt around the mountain, and they're just a disorganized mass. And what does he give them? He gives them the 10 words, the Decalogue, but he also gives them a lot of information on the rituals of the tabernacle, how to build it, the priesthood and all that. He forms them into a nation and that nation requires order and discipline and structure and authority. Um, well, that happens all the way through the Bible. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, well, 12 through 14, is really concerned that the Corinthian church is kind of going wild. And he ends up saying, look, uh, even though the Spirit is working through you to prophesy or to speak in languages, mm-hmm. do it one at a time. And then there has to be an interpreter. God is uh, God is not... A spirit of di- the spirit is a spirit of order, not disorder. That's the way he ends that, uh, and I think we forget that. But in order, there is in in structure there is freedom. You know, you put up the guardrails, and there's a lot of freedom within the guardrails. Um, but it's not just a free for all. Um, so, and and I'll say again, again too. I think lots of times in some American churches. There's the feeling that this is really all about us being free, but they generally settle on certain patterns. They mm-hmm. do the same thing every week. Uh, sometimes it's just not really well thought out. Um, so everybody's going to repeat things. Everybody's going to have order. It just, you know, what's the order look like? What's it feel like? What's it doing? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you've already kind of mentioned this a little, but essentially, do we come to church to give of ourselves, to get something from God, some of both? What do we walk away having done? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of, of the, of the book is to get people to realize that you're coming to church, a needy, dependent, sinful creature. And you need God to give you things. <laughs> you need him to give you assurance of forgiveness. You need him to give you wisdom and uh, knowledge. You need him to give you strength and peace at the Lord's table. We, You need him to give you a, a mission and send you out. Um, uh, that, is, that is a hugely important dynamic in a Christian worship service. Gift and response. Um, a lot of of, of uh, evangelicals have talked about the dialogical nature of worship, and I agree with that because it emphasizes the words that everything's you know a lot of it spoken. God speaks, we respond. In yeah, and that's fine. But dialogue can also mean like equals, dialogue between equals, 
And that's not what's going on. You got to recognize it's gift and response. We gather together because God wants to give us and we need to receive what he, he gives us. Um, there's, there's kind of this super spiritual wrongheaded idea. Oh, we don't go to church to get anything. I'm not going to church. I'm just going to church to praise God. Well, okay. Are you, you some kind of equal with God? You know, I don't need anything. I don't need to get anything from God. I just want to praise him. I just want to glorify him and lift him up. Now, I, I understand. I think some of where that's coming from, I get it. Um, and I think some of it is maybe directed towards the selfishness of some evangelical churches, which is all about, you know, wealth and prosperity and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I get that, but it's really not accurate and or helpful because we do go to church to get from God. Uh, we give to him, give him praise, give him thanks uh, for sure. But it's in response to what he's giving to us all through the service as we move through the service. And we also go, as I said earlier, to give to one another. Okay, When you go to church, your participation is not just before God, but it's before the people on either side of you. And you need to recognize they're, they're gifted by your participation. And you are gifted by their participation. Uh, so there's just lots of gift and responses going on in, in the service. Yeah, that's great. One of the things we do every week, and some of the people I've talked to before in the past have said you do that every week, is communion. So we take communion every week, every Lord's Day. Um, why do we do it every week? Is there a biblical precedent for that? Or is it just something that our Presbyterian denomination does? Well, again, another good question. And it's not something that Presbyterians do uh traditionally in fact presbyterians tend not to do it weekly presbyterians have well this would take a long time to explain <laughs> presbyterians have in the past uh elevated the sermon to a height where uh well, that's one of the problems a sermon it's it's a primacy of the intellect kind of thing with a lot of presbyterians is you go to church for the sermon um and the supper, the supper gets sh short shrift. Um, but there's also too is is the idea that the supper is scary, it's frightening, uh, and in Presbyterian tradition, um, there's a lot of emphasis on fencing the table from not just from unbelievers, but from believers who aren't ready, who aren't properly prepared, who. Uh, aren't really sure whether they're regenerate or not, you know, and all that. And that has led to a lot of Presbyterians in the past, at least just not wanting to have communion all the time. Mm. Uh, maybe. So when, the, when the 16th century's re reformed reformers started uh, working on worship and, and uh, restoring uh, worship from the late medieval Roman Catholic church, um, at the time, uh, the, the supper or the mass, the Eucharist was so scary because you're handling the body and blood of Jesus. In fact, you weren't actually handling the body and blood of Jesus in the late medieval church. You never got, you never got the blood. You never got the wine. Uh, you got the bread and even that was scary too. So once a year, maybe you partook in, in most of the churches in Europe. Um, you, you could watch the priest partake, you could view him do it. And that was considered to be a kind of partaking, um, but you didn't. So the reformers sought to restore, um, communion in both kinds, bread and wine to the people. Um, but even there, they faced a lot of resistance. Uh, Luther pretty much restored it weekly. Calvin could only get monthly, and even then, uh, he could never quite get it to to be to be done in a way that would be free from all the late medieval kinds of problems with it. 
and that that carried on in in Puritanism uh, in the 17th century, England and Scotland. Um, you had to prove yourself before you came to the table. You had to get a token from your pastor or your elders after they did a rigorous examination of you and made sure your theological views were right and the evaluation of whether you're actually regenerate or not. Um, that that led to a lot of problems and a lot of fear of the Lord's Supper. And you still got that in some, mm -hmm. some Reformed communions uh, do this. They, they so frighten people uh, that even if you have communion, a lot of people won't partake because they don't want to bring judgment on themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not, that's not what the table is about. The table is, is like a family table for the people of God to come and eat and find nourishment and peace uh, with, with the Lord and with one another. Uh, um, and, and all through the Bible, meals are central. Meals with God. The high point is a meal with God. God feeds you. You eat with one another. Uh, the sacrifice of peace uh, is is one of the uh, the offerings, the near bringings, whatever you want to call them, uh, where the people partake of the the meat from the sacrifice together, uh, and 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 that's that's the high point. That is the the culmination of the sacrificial system is to be able to do that. Uh, so Passover is another example of that. Um, you partook of the lamb and the other meal and the meal that goes with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely an experience of joy and peace uh, during and especially after we partake of the Lord's Supper at, at our service specifically. It really is very, it's very different. It's very good. And it's this... It's something that I told one of the other pastors after a few months of attending and we became members, I said, I'm like, there's just something to it afterwards. There really is a, a real sense, not just some feeling, but a real sense of peace and joy that yeah. it's almost palpable. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's there, it's present. Yeah. And it's, and it's sad. It's very sad that when a lot of churches celebrate the supper, it's a gloomy kind of experience. Um, the, the table is not a tomb. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a table. Yeah. Um, and it, in a lot of churches, it's a tomb and you're constantly, well, when I introduced some changes years ago in another church, one of the elders who had brought up, brought up in the tradition I was just talking about the gloomy tradition and the scary tradition um, said to me, you know, I was taught that when I come to the table and everybody's quiet, I was supposed to turn inward and I was supposed to meditate on my sin. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and I like, what? Um, really? And then I realized at this church, everybody's quiet or by everybody's partaking by themselves, kind of turn inward. Um, I said, well, wait a minute. Didn't you confess your sins at the beginning of the service didn't you hear that the pastor however he did it reminded you that jesus forgives you of your sins why do you need to think about them at a table yeah and in fact do you do that at home with your family when you guys eat do you eat quietly <laughs> and is it all introspective and you you tell your kids at the table to think about all the ways they misbehave today. <laughs> Feel really bad about it. He's been to our house. <laughs> yeah. You're right. That's it. Right. You, you got go. it. <laughs> you do that. Well, yeah. Okay, good. No. <laughs> well, that's, that's really good. And I think if you don't have confession of sin, be a part of your service, then maybe that's why the table becomes kind of this, this gloomy thing. You haven't dealt with it the sin corporately before. Um, yeah. So the, another thing that strikes us as very different in the Lord's service is that the pastor leads the entire service, even the singing. There's not a worship team or a worship leader up front. It's the pastor is the there in the beginning with the call to worship and then all throughout. Why, why is that? 
Yeah, um, that's a good question too. Very good question. The whole, the whole movement about worship committees, worship teams, worship leaders, that's a very modern thing. Some very American thing. Um, there, I know the reasons for it, but well, a couple things. One is when you do that, oftentimes, especially in American evangelical churches, the service becomes something of a concert, right? Um, and so you got like a little concert. And then you have the pastor who comes up and gives a sermon and then maybe a few more songs and you're done. Um, it's a lot of this is the modern American entertainment culture dictating how we do things in church because people feel comfortable with that. Uh, it started, it started in force probably back in the, early 80s with the seeker sensitive movement where church just became a vehicle for evangelism a way of doing evangelism um and so you, the church becomes like an auditorium uh, with a stage with uh, people up front doing all sorts of things um that's that's one of the problems the second problem is that we have a lot of folks have this idea that if you don't get to participate in the leadership of a worship service, then your gifts are not being appreciated so that everybody has to kind of be brought up and to do something so that we can appreciate the gifts of women and children, other men, all sorts of things that happens too. Um, that's also some that's pretty modern look uh pastors this is what our job is this is what pastors are called to do in the history of the church a pastor is ordained to lead worship and preach and distribute the elements and baptize and do those kinds of things that's what he's called to do um so other people aren't called to do that uh i don't i don't so much mind worship teams if they're in the back or on the side. Um, so I'm not opposed to other musical instruments, churches that have the Lord's service often have more, you know, acoustical acoustics and drums and stuff. That's fine, but they have it on the side or they have it in the back because what it's not up front to entertain you. It's alongside of you to help you or it's in the back to bolster you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so the worship leader or the, the 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 chorus line of girls or guys up front, um, they don't become like little celebrities in the church because they're up there. Um, they're they're actually their personality is marginalized because they're in the back, just like the pastor's personality is marginalized because he wears a robe. Okay, you don't you shouldn't think of jeff myers up there you know i'm not wearing you know my competition shooting jersey or something or i'm not wearing my you know favorite rock band t-shirt uh <laughs> and sandals or whatever uh, you know uh whatever my personality is uh and i'm not wearing a business suit because i'm not a businessman um i'm a pastor and that's that's another point about why we're up there is the congregation should know, and it's our concern, say myself and Pastor Scogan, it's our concern that the words we say and the things we do are the Lord's words for his people, uh, not just my words, but the Lord's words. So the people should be left in no doubt that when the pastor proclaims the forgiveness of sins, that God is speaking through the pastor. Okay. When the pastor calls people to worship, it's not your buddy or your friend up there is calling you to worship, although you can do that. I mean, there's nothing sinful about that, but it's more appropriate to have the pastor do it. So everybody knows that God is speaking and acting 
for us through his appointed ministers. That's that's the reason why the pastors are up there. Now, it's not to say that other people can't be up there leading worship. We'll have interns do it occasionally, seminary students. Uh, and if Caleb and I both came down with some kind of illness someday, ruling elders could get up there, deacons could get up there. It's not like I have some kind of special, you know, possession of the spirit or something like that. But it, it's just appropriate and helpful that the pastor do that. Um, and I don't think that a lot of churches, a lot of evangelical churches, even Presbyterian churches, think through that carefully enough. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's that those are some of the reasons that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And in a similar vein, you make a point in the book about the pastor specifically needing to be male. Can you show share with us why why that is? Thank you. You're going to go there. Wow. I am. All yeah. right. It was, uh, a, it was a great point. It was very helpful. Because. No, it was a good point in the book. It's biblical. Yep. Priests are male. Uh, high priests male. Elders are male. From. Old and New Testament, all through Jesus chose male disciples. Uh, the disciples chose men to lead churches. Um, that's that's the bottom line reason is male leadership is all through the Bible. Now, also add this, as I said before. So as the pastor is up there leading worship and standing in for, if you will, uh, um, or at least uh, being being the messenger of the Lord to the people. The people are the bride. Jesus is the husband. The husband guards and loves and protects the bride. Uh, and so in order to maintain, and this is something that's all through Christendom, whether it's Roman Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Episcopal, is that one of the reasons for a male pastor and male leadership on in the Sunday liturgy is that you have the bridegroom and the bride and the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus. And he's speaking to us. He's acting uh, in our behalf as the bride of Christ. Um, so the whole congregation is really in a feminine kind of role to receive uh, that gifts, instruction and leadership from him. That's good. That's good. So we have kids in our congregation throughout the entire service. Why, why in our service do we keep our kids, the loud, loud children that we have? <laughs> why, why are these kids sitting in service with us? Well, you need to control your kids a little bit. <laughs> I'll try to do better. Especially, especially your the baby Eden. No crying. She's out of control. You'd be spanked if you started crying. Okay. Uh, Pastor said we got to spank our one month old. Okay. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Please don't do that. We're uh, standing on the promises now. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, well, goodness, there's no indication anywhere in the Bible that children are excluded from the assembly at all, ever. Um, yeah, you know, when Moses wants to go out into the wilderness and have a feast to the Lord. And he tells Pharaoh that Pharaoh says, Oh, well, let the men go out and let the men and women go out. And Moses said, no, no, no. Our little ones will go with us. Mm -hmm. um, there's this just, there's this appreciation for the fact that children belong to the Lord as much as adults do. And they benefit from the service in ways that, Sometimes adults don't appreciate. Uh, again, we're back to the problem in so much of reformed and evangelical American, but also English churches, even continental maybe, is the primacy of the intellect. That the only thing that happens that's beneficial for everybody in the service is the propagation, the proclamation of ideas, ideas about the Bible, ideas about whatever. Uh, doctrines, propositions, uh, uh, the sermon, the sermon is, you know, so central. It's not a sermon is important. I agree. And it has a centrality. Uh, that's fine. But there are other things that happen in the service and in a, in a, in a, uh, in a more traditional service, a, a, a covenant renewal service, a, uh, 
liturgical service that the kids benefit from. Uh, the kids benefit from the patterning they get from from the repetitive liturgy, but also kids benefit from being with their parents and watching their parents get on their knees. Oh, my dad's a humble man. He can get on his knees. Oh, my dad praises God by singing. And my mom does too. And, and they may not articulate that to you ever, but they're seeing it. They're watching it. They're observing it. And it'll make a difference in their life as they grow up. Um, so kids need to be, you know, she shuffled them off into a children's church in order to watch, you know, a Disney movie or something. Uh, they're there in the service and they benefit. Uh, so a couple things. Um, there's a number of children in the church now that have been there for a long time. And I, I can watch them uh, and see how they participate. And some of them have been there since they've been infants. And they know when to raise their hand. They know to sing the Nunc Dimittis. They know the Nicene Creed. They know all these things that we do regularly and repetitively. Um, and they love doing it. <laughs> they they like doing it. Um, at least some of them do. You know, once you get to be a junior high kid, you don't like anything in church. But, uh, we got you got to work on that. Um, so that and then also the new humanity that Jesus is uh, recreating doesn't just include adults. It includes everybody, children, autistic children, Down syndrome children, uh, older folks that lose some of their mental capacity. They all should be there and they all should be at the table. Um, and it's not just for adults. Um, and for adults that have, you know, good cognitive abilities. It's for everybody and because Jesus is recreating humanity and includes infants. That's so let them. And of course, we refer to all the places where Jesus says, let the little children come to me in the Gospels. Um, that's often used as a proof text for infant baptism. And I think it relates to that. But all these kids that Jesus is asking to come to him. Mm -hmm. in the gospels they've they've already been circumcised they've already been part of the assembly of israel um they're coming to him for blessing they're coming to him he places their hands his hands on he blesses them that's more like the table mm -hmm. that's more like what ha jesus is present in a special way at his table um and so when jesus says let the little children come to me it's like a father saying to the children come on let's eat gather around the table. Uh, and this is how you know that your mom and I love you and, and we'll take care of you. We provide for you food and drink. Mm -hmm. Jesus does that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So talk about the forsaking of the assembly. So for those who say, hey, we have all this technology, we have computers and smartphones and all this stuff. We can just sit at home and not participate in the Lord's service we can observe the Lord's service from afar. You know, I'm talking not not those that are, you know, needing to are needing Ill. to ill or bedridden, but those that are young and could go to church, but otherwise say, I don't really want to go. I don't really want to participate. I would rather either not do anything, but maybe just observe the sermon from yeah, afar. Well, why, why do you why do you think people choose that? option which is available today of course with technology i think one reason is because maybe the the local church that they would go to you know they don't really like the sermons or they think that they can get enough of what they need just just listening in you know yeah. or they like a pastor that's in a different state better oh okay sure that kind of thing I well think and that's that, that so then they substitute that for Sunday morning actual participation of the Lord's service. Yeah, that's the challenge of having so much available online that you can you can listen to anybody. You can choose anybody you want. Um, there's a couple of problems with that. One is 
it's kind of Gnostic again. You're back to this Gnostic idea that the only thing you're really getting from church is the ideas, is the knowledge. And so I'm going to this other pastor or this other service to get knowledge. And so what you do in your bracketing, all of the personal face-to-face -face interaction with people in the assembly. Um, and that that is not healthy. That again, it's kind of, it's a mark of our time where people think they can get online everything they need without personal interaction. Some of it is some of it also is just it's just too easy. Uh, and being with people together with people is hard. You have to actually interact with people that you may not like or that don't have the same likes as you do uh, that are older than you or younger than you see a lot of the online stuff. It's all about the young kids and they all kind of do things together and they're comfortable with that. But part of the, part of the uh, benefit of an assembly is you're with all kinds of people and that sanctifies you that builds you up that challenges you. Um, that's iron sharpening iron kind of thing. Um, without that, uh, you're getting a very truncated uh, experience from from a online worship service. Um, it, it also ties into the whole problem with so many modern Americans and them coming to church and the seeker sensitive worship services would talk about how people want to be anonymous when they come to church. Yeah. And I understand anonymity for like a first time or a second time visitor. Um, you know, we don't parade them up. We don't ask them to stand up or anything silly like that. Lots of churches do or put name tags on them, you know, okay. You want to be anonymous for a first couple of times just to, you know, see what the church is like. You, I mean, the reality is you have to evaluate churches in our day and age. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully you'll do it with the right criteria. Um, but this idea that, you know, of, that this, um, that you, you want, people want to be anonymous, that is an escape from reality. That is an escape from responsibility. Uh, and unfortunately, the internet encourages that kind of thing. So you can just, you know, sit on your couch in your PJs and watch and, and watch and listen to a sermon or a service. Sure. Um, you're not helping yourself doing that yeah. at all. Um, you need to be with other people. I mean, if there's anything we get in the, in the, in the new Testament is that there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of one anothering commands. Mm -hmm. And that's face to face. That's flesh to flesh. That's handshakes and hugs and, and, and holy kisses all sorts of places, you know, greet each other with a holy kiss. You can't do that on the internet. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a holy kiss right now. <laughs> can we no. really kiss at church? First Corinthians 16. Can we, can we do that? Can we implement that at Providence? <laughs> um, we've thought about that. So at Theopolis, when we go to Theopolis for yep. worship services, um, we have morning, afternoon, and evening services. And in the, in our matin service, the morning service, everybody greets one another with a holy kiss. Mm. Uh, and, and it's all men at the, well, actually it's not all men. There's some women there too, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's a embrace and it's a kind of kiss on the neck. It's not a, you know, yeah. kiss on the lips uh, <laughs> and it's, it's meaningful. Um, yeah. It, sometime it'd be nice to implement that. Yeah. It's not easy to do. You should start it next Sunday. What? Yeah. Next you should Sunday. start it. Just, just start randomly kissing people <laughs> and tell people 1 Corinthians 16. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm afraid, that, I'm afraid that there might be some inappropriate activity that goes on with that. That could. That could. Very good. Very good. Do you have any final question at all or anything you want to say? I guess just if you're curious about this type of service check out the lord's service and also 
the church website, mm-hmm. you do kind of give a breakdown on yeah. there of these different pieces. And I think for us too, it's this type of service is so different than what we had previously experienced. And it's, um, it's like, it's just the richest thing we've ever been a part of, even though it's so different and it's not flashy and it's not, um, it's not seeking an experience and yet we're, and yet we're receiving an experience capital E, you know, it's like so many people go to church and want an experience with God. I want to experience God. And this church is by far not experiencing some titillating event uh, or, you know, rock concert or anything where you go and you're experiencing mass amounts of emotion and entertainment. Yeah. But there is an experience here. Yeah. And and in, uh, in the history of American evangelicalism, there has always been this temptation, this danger, this practice of trying to engineer experiences with people. Yeah. So through music, through lighting, through atmosphere, through the way that the pastor talks and does things, it's the whole uh, uh, Charles Finney. It's the Finneyism yep. of of engineering conversion experience and, and engineering people to have experiences in church. That is definitely not what we want to do. And yet, at the same time, if you have a faithful biblical you know word of god saturated service that flows in a way that people can understand it you're going to have an you should have an experience of god i mean what's it say in first corinthians 14 um you know when an unbeliever comes in your presence he's talking about tongues and prophecy and you know people come in and hear tongues they're going to think you're nuts and wild but if people come in and, and hear the word of God, they're going to fall on their face and say, God is truly in this place. Yeah. They're not going to say, oh, this is really cool. This is just like a concert. Yeah. Uh, I feel really comfortable here. Right. Actually, unbelievers will feel uncomfortable, yeah. uh, inappropriately so, at first at least. Um, so, yeah, you, there there should be an experience, but we're not going to engineer it through emotional rhetoric or through lights and music that's designed to produce some sort of, you know, emotional response. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly. Also, we did talk about why it's good to be present versus doing the online thing, but also what is the guard going to church? What's the guard against apostasy there? Is, is it helpful to go to church to not slip away from the Lord? Is, oh, there, is there a connection? Yeah. There? Oh, for sure. I think without the, absolutely, without the full experience of a local congregation, without being a part of a uh, member, formal member, or just participating in the assembly of people that gather around the table and around the word of God and have leaders and uh, mutual submission and all the things that go on in a local assembly without that, yeah, you're going to fall away. Uh, and if, and eventually um, the, uh, the devil is going to get you uh, because you don't have all the proper support and props that the Lord has given you to keep you on the straight and narrow. You're going to go off the path. Uh, that's one of the first things that happens with people who apostatize is they stop showing up for worship and you're like, well, why what's going on? Um, Sometimes they stop showing up for worship because, you know, they found another woman or another man or, or they're, you know, embezzling from their, their company and they just feel too guilty to come to church. But sometimes they just lose interest in church. And then because they're not around people that are encouraging them and challenging them, then they find another woman. Then they find another man. Then they go down the wrong path in terms of their moral life. Um, but yeah, abs- absolutely. I, I just, um, all through the scriptures, it's assumed that you're going to be meeting with God's people regularly on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. Uh, and if you're not, it's it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You're, you're out on your own. 
Yep. Can't do it by yourself. Yep. That's a good question. Yep. Pastor Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Any final words or anything? I really do encourage people to read the book. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's good. it's it's a big book. I think someone told me there's an abridged copy somewhere, um, but I don't read abridged material, so <laughs> I don't care. It's, I want I want the full thing, and this is just it it's really worth isn't it. A, it's worth it. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. thank you very much. It's an old the abridged one. It's an old one that I originally did for the congregation, um, but also if you go on online to our uh, our website the church's website providencestlouis.com uh, there's also a short guide uh, that you can download that kind of sums everything up okay uh, you can look at that too yeah uh, we'll provide so that question, in the dis- good we'll provide that in the link of the description of the video so people can click right on it so uh, my question at the close is how much better was i than my son <laughs> Should we should 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 we rank them? <laughs> no, you were different you were so matter. much better. <laughs> Yay! Hey, yeah. Okay. Well, thank thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast: Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools to create a new one a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. 